Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Why You Know Doctor podcast. My name is Dominic Zai, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I have Dr. Kristen Troy on the podcast. Kristen is a Forbes 30 Under 30 recipient and I believe the lone nurse that was on the list. She's also an assistant professor at UCLA who focuses on mental health policy for vulnerable populations. We talk a bit about her research. She has more than 30 publications and also about why nursing is a viable career choice that is often very much overlooked. Really appreciate, of course, you, you hopping on the podcast and uh, congrats on the, the Forbes 30 under 30. I know I know there, you were like one of the only nurses or were you only nurse? It's, that was I, I was. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me on. You know, I, I think that... Um, so Forbes, the healthcare list is something that's relatively new. I think it's been okay. around since maybe 2015 or so. And, you know, historically, I don't think that they've recognized many frontline clinicians much at all. It's a lot of people who are in the healthcare startup and healthcare tech mm, space, which is yeah. great. But, you know, I think in 2020, uh, the pandemic, I think, really shined a light on how important people who are providing frontline clinical care are in our healthcare system. And I was really felt really honored to be representing nurses on, on the list for the first time in the U.S. and to be there with other residents and medical students and other people who were really young and early in their careers, but really making a difference in ways that that counted. So it, it was a big honor to um, to be on it this uh, past year. All right. So just diving in uh, just a little bit about like kind of your background. So where did you grow up? Um, and let's just start there. Where did you grow up and a little bit about like your childhood and uh, and then we can, uh, I'm curious about a little bit more about like kind of what your uh, how you got into the space that you got into. Yeah, definitely. So um, I grew up in Michigan. I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan, right outside of Michigan. I know State I have a lot of friends that, that one of my best friends lives in lives in East Lansing, actually. Right oh, now. great, great. Yeah. You know, my my family thought I was a traitor though because I went to our biggest rival, the University of Michigan, for nursing school after I finished high school. Um, and you know, when I got into nursing school at Michigan, I started right away being involved in clinical care and, and taking classes where I was working with patients. And pretty much right away, I realized that I was not going to be happy being a nurse. And I, I say that because, you know, there was a lot of things about nursing that was really rewarding, the interpersonal aspects of caring for people and families who were sick. But I found myself being so frustrated by the healthcare system problems I saw. I was way more interested in, you know, why is it so hard for people to access care? Why is it so expensive? Why are there so many things we're doing that seem like they don't work or don't make sense? And I think I came to feel like being a clinician, whether you're a nurse or a physician or a therapist, whatever you are, you can sometimes start to feel like you're just a cog in a machine. And I was someone who really wanted to go and change that machine and, and make it run better. Well, at what point did you um, start to consider like nursing as like a, a career path? Was that something that from quite young you, you were pretty interested in? No, actually, you know, it was something I think I chose really late in the game um, okay. for a long time. For most of my uh, high school, actually, I, I really loved to draw and paint. I was very into oh, art nice. and very interested in art in art school. But um, I also loved math and science. Academics were really important to me. And yeah. as I kind of started to think about a career path, what I wanted to do, uh, I, I have a memory of one one day sitting in the library at my school and, and just reading about nursing. And, and when I read about it and, and the way it really combined science and, and human anatomy and physiology and these scientific things with a lot of interpersonal practice. I didn't know much about it, but I thought this, this seems like a great career for me. Um, when I, I teach nursing students now, and a lot of them 
come to nursing having said, you know, I've wanted to be a nurse since I was five, or, you know, my mom was Mm -hmm. a nurse, or I was sick, and I was so uh, impacted by the nurses who helped me, and really come to it with a long history. I didn't know anything about it, and just kind of dove in. And like I said, I I have kind of a a love-hate relationship with clinical care as a nurse. Mm -hmm. I I love to take care of patients. It's very meaningful. But again, I, I still, when I see patients today, find myself always going to that system level and thinking about things. And so now I feel really fortunate to be able to do research where I can work at a system level, but also see patients and kind of have the best of both worlds. Yeah. Many people, um, especially just growing up as an Asian American, I feel like uh, the parents are like, or societal pressure is like, you know, you should become a doctor because doctors are in like the healthcare system, like very prestigious, right? It's like, you know, you have really good grades and like you make more money and, and that type of stuff. So I think naturally a lot of like parents or just societal pressure pushes young people to be like, you know, I'm going to become a doctor. What's your perspective on that Mm -hmm. when choosing? Like, you know, I don't even feel like a lot of people even think like nurse is a viable option, actually. Perhaps they're like, um, you know, just go do (laughs) pre-med. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I I think there's a lot to unpack here, but that's absolutely been my experience. You know, when I told people I wanted to be a nurse and I decided to nursing school, almost universally, the reaction I got was this just like disappointment, like, oh, you're so smart. Why don't you be a doctor? Why, why would you, why would you choose nursing? And I think a lot of that mentality really comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of what nursing is. I think if, you know, you ask an average person off the street, you know, what is nursing? What do you think about nurses? We tend to think of nurses as these very kind, compassionate people, maybe something like, you know, they're angels or they're heroes. They're just these really nice people that, that care for people who are sick. And, you know, that's really a misconception. Nursing is um, a science and a practice. And, you know, nurses, the way we care for people is something that has its own evidence base. And, you know, when we are kind and compassionate to people, it's not just because that's the kind of people we are, but because there's evidence that that therapeutic relationship between nurses and patients helps them uh, get better and heal from illness. And, And so I think there's a really fundamental misunderstanding of the science of nursing. Mm-hmm. I um I think it's helpful to define nursing kind of in the context of medicine because I think people often think nursing is some amorphous subset of medicine. If medicine is the diagnosis and treatment of illness, nursing is the diagnosis and treatment of the human response to illness. And and that science again is its own okay. standalone discipline apart from medicine. And so, you know, it's been something that uh, I and I know a lot of other nurses have had to really deal with my whole career, this kind of thinking that nursing is something lesser, that, you know, it would be better to be a doctor, Uh, certainly had a lot of pressure from my own family, my Korean grandfather is a doctor. A lot of people um, would ask me, you know, when, when are you going to go to medical school? Now that you're a nurse, do you think you'll go to medical school? <laughs> Even after I, I finished my PhD, people said, that, that's great. Do you think you'll go to medical school next? And I constantly had to say, no, actually, I'm making an intentional choice to be a nurse. And, you know, making an intentional choice to be a doctor is great, but that's not for me. I'm going to choose to locate my practice and my science in, in the discipline of nursing. And, you know, it, I think it's something that I feel strongly about telling people about and helping young people who might be thinking about their careers to understand. If you're someone who likes math and science and and you want to be in situations where you're doing fast-paced, exciting work that's meaningful and makes a difference, I think nursing is a really viable path to consider. You know, and I'll also say, I think the pandemic this past year really shined a spotlight on nurses and what they do in a way that we haven't really had in the past. Um, You know, a lot of studies show that in ICUs, which is of course what we've heard about all year on the news, about 86% of the 
time that uh, care that patients receive comes from nurses. Nurses are really the ones that are there in the trenches, saving people's lives day in and day out. They really are the backbone of healthcare. And uh, I, I think that one bright spot from the pandemic is that it has inspired a lot more people to want to apply into nursing school and become nurses. And that's really exciting to me because we have a longstanding nursing shortage. And I, I really hope that this inspires more people and more people from a diversity of backgrounds to consider nursing for themselves. That's really interesting. What do you see as kind of for, for someone that is maybe trying to decide between nursing or like, you know, pursuing the path of like becoming a doctor? Do you have any ideas on like what might be some important considerations to determine like fit for a career? Because also, I mean, like mm-hmm. for, for you, although you, you became a nurse, but then you also went on to, to get your PhD. Is that like common? Is that, you know, or like for you to do that, what were some of the main driving reasons that you felt like, you know, could expand what, you know, to to help you accomplish your goals, I guess? Like, how could that help? Sure, sure. Well, you know, I think when it comes to deciding between nursing and medicine, I'm I'm a firm believer, you know, there's no right or wrong answer, right? We work together in a team in almost all contexts, and and Mm -hmm. there's not one role that's better for people. But I I think that, you know, the signal maybe that you might want to consider nursing is um, how much do you want to have interpersonal practice and patient relationships be a part of what you do? I think, uh, again, the people who really spend the time with the patients and and build relationships and get to actually do the actions that save people's lives and are meaningful to them are nurses. When people come out of the hospital, they often have no idea who their doctors were, but they will (laughs) definitely remember their nurses. And and so, again, if, if that part is what motivates you to want to go into health, Uh, wanting to have those meaningful patient interactions and encounters. Nursing is really the best place for that to be the center of your practice and what you do day in and day out. And to your question about getting a PhD, I'm really glad you asked about this because right now, less than 1% of nurses in the US hold a PhD. We do not have very many nurses who go on to be scientists and who study these issues and do research on how we can advance nursing practice and science. But it's a huge, huge need. And and I think that for people who might want uh, something like what I saw to make system change and to really think about changing healthcare, nursing is a really wonderful path to consider because, you know, nursing is the biggest healthcare workforce in the country. We provide the majority of the care. And if we can move levers on nursing practice in in healthcare, there's really high potential to make a big difference. So uh, I think Mm -hmm. if you're interested in science, if you care about those interpersonal relationships, nursing is definitely a career path that you should consider. So why, so, so you specifically, um, for your PhD, you focused on PTSD and child abuse. Is that, is that like the, the name of the program or uh, how did you decide on that? Yeah. Uh, so the PhD did that was, was in nursing, uh, but ah, my nursing. research, ah, gotcha. yes, yes. But my, my research was focused on trauma and, you know, I got into the research and trauma for really a variety of reasons, uh, some clinical, some personal, uh, but, um, I, I will say that there is, a very strong relationship between trauma and illness. People who experience trauma early in their lives when they're very young, that trauma can have really long reverberating effects for people and their health across their entire lives. And not just their mental health in terms of things like PTSD and depression, but actually it can affect our our biology and our physical health in ways that play out as chronic disease. And so I became really interested in thinking about how do we intervene for kids who have experienced trauma and prevent that kind of cascade of illness that can come with people that have experienced trauma early in life. Can you explain or just de- define trauma? Is it just like sure. just like something happens where and then you you develop PTSD? Is that what you're saying? Or what, what is like a sure, sure, example? Sure. 
Uh, so trauma broadly, you know, is an experience of something that's uh, life-threatening or scary. Um, oh, okay. This is a very broad term. We use trauma to refer to a lot of different buckets. Uh, trauma can happen in the context of the military. It can happen in the co context of natural disasters or car accidents, but it can also happen in the context of interpersonal relationships. And so when there is trauma that involves a perpetrator, these would be situations like domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse. That interpersonal trauma is the kind that tends to be uh, most harmful to people's health. And so that's the kind that I study trauma where there's a perpetrator. Okay. And then um, I know like you've published a bunch of like research papers now as well. Um, what are primarily like some of like the key, the key focus areas that, you know, of your research today? Yeah, well, you know, since I've moved to UCLA, one of the difficult things about being in the mental health space is that there are uh, so few of us researching mental health problems in relation to how many people are studying physical health, that there are uh, many, many more research questions that need to be answered than I could do by myself. But that has also mm. meant that I've expanded a lot beyond studying just trauma to studying other sorts of things as well. So I do still do research on trauma. Um, yeah. I do a lot of work on the idea of trauma-informed care and how we can create healthcare systems okay. that recognize trauma and respond to it. And again, where we can connect people to treatments that we know work. I also do some work on screening for trauma and how we can, again, catch trauma early and, and intervene for people before uh, it gets to a place where it's making people sick. Since I've moved to LA, I've also started doing some research on homelessness and schizophrenia. Um, I work at a hospital where we care for homeless people who are schizophrenic and have other kinds of serious mental illness. And uh, you know anyone who's lived in LA or any big city and has seen this kind of serious mental illness and homelessness probably knows that it's a, a very complicated and difficult phenomenon to treat. So I have also started doing some research on that uh, and, and how, again, we can target our services within LA to, to better meet the needs of people who might be experiencing homelessness and mental illness. I've done some work on uh, firearm violence and suicide. Uh, I've done some work on depression. Uh, again, kind of a range of things. I think that because I'm a nurse and because I see patients that have such a wide range of different issues in the camp of mental health, I've always uh, seen myself as someone that's going to sort of broadly be focused on mental health research, but going to also adapt to what are the problems that are most pressing and that need to be solved. And so that's why I've kind of done um, a mix of things and haven't stayed mm -hmm. just in the trauma camp. You know, I think in in the U.S. as a whole, we still have a really big problem with stigma against against mental illness. I think there is very much a mentality that anyone who is struggling and experiencing distress or mental health symptoms we often see it as a sign of weakness. And it's something that as a result, a lot of people don't wanna talk about and don't wanna get help for. That's true of the US as a whole, but certainly within some uh, racial and ethnic groups and cultural groups, there's other reasons why mental health is stigmatized. And you know, from what I've seen caring for patients in LA, there can be a lot of stigma against seeking treatment and medication for mental illness, specifically in the Asian community. You know, Interestingly, I, I work a lot with teens and I feel really, um, uh, hopeful when I talk to, to mm -hmm. teens today, because I think that they are way more savvy and comfortable talking about mental illness openly than people of our generation were. And that's great. Mm -hmm. But one of the big challenges, of course, is their parents. And a lot of times yeah. we will see kids who might be really um, self-aware and open and willing to get help, but parents who may not want their kids to take medication or to get treatment or to be in therapy. And so bridging that generational divide, I think is one of the biggest challenges uh, when it comes to the Asian community and, and mental health. 
and uh, thinking about how we can have, you know, families all be together on board with evidence and what we know works. And what I usually will say to these parents is, you know, when we talk about mental illness, this is something that we really have to see the way we do other disease. You know, if your kid had cancer or diabetes, you'd probably want them to take medication for it. And, you know, if your kid has depression or PTSD in the same way, um, you know, they may need to take some medication for it. And that's not a sign of weakness or a sign that there's something Mm -hmm. wrong with them. It's, uh, it's a good thing that we have a treatment for these things that can help. I know you do a lot of like trail running and like exercise, like how much of it can be influenced just by like you, like taking care of yourself, getting regular exercise and those type yeah. of things versus like medication. Yeah, absolutely. Lifestyle it plays a huge role. Uh, I, a lot of people, and there are studies on this, who, who do have regular physical activity in their lives, who eat a healthy diet, mm-hmm. those things absolutely can play out for, for our mental health. Again, it's something that it's it's hard. There's not a one yeah. size fits all for people. I not really like thing. to run. Some people hate yeah. running and that's totally okay. But I, I do think it's important for people to find those lifestyle things that they enjoy and, and that if you can find something you enjoy, that that can be a really uh, great way to, to boost your mental health. That being said, you know, I, I think there is a point when people have clinical level depression or anxiety mm. or, or something else where, uh, you know, those sort of lifestyle things and self-care things they might do aren't enough. And, and I think it's okay to recognize the limits of those things, but also that they can be really helpful. And, you know, for a lot of people in the mental health world, we look at things in kind of a black and white way, like you have depression or you don't, or you have an anxiety disorder or you don't. But the reality is that for most of us, these things are such a spectrum and they're very situational. There are some times where we may feel uh, symptoms of depression that might not be at a clinical level, but we're still feeling them. They're still affecting us. And so I think for folks who might not be at that clinical level of depression or anxiety where they need to Mm -hmm. seek professional treatment, um, if it's something that's situational, I think that's a really great space to explore lifestyle things in your control that you can do to boost your own mental health. You feel like the trend line of just like people getting di- like diagnosed with like depression or anxiety or, or some of these things, has that just been continually increasing o- over the last, especially I guess with COVID, I, I assume it went- increased a lot, but you know, just as a general yeah. trend over the last decade or even longer. Yeah, it, it has been going up uh, right now in the US. Uh, it's about one in five adults that have some sort of mental illness. About 10% of people in the US specifically have depression. It's hard to say, though, if those trends are going up because something is changing in our world or society that's making it go up, or if it's going up because there is increasingly less stigma, more recognition. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And and the reality is probably that it's it's a combination of both. Um, I I will say one one trend line that we do know is going up in a way that's concerning is suicide. There is a lot of Mm. increase in suicide that's been happening over the past 30 or so years. That is one that really concerns me, especially when it comes to youth suicide. And again, it's one where I'm glad there is more recognition and openness to talking about it, especially again, when I talk to teens and I see how much more open they are to talking about Mm. mental health and the ways they struggle than I was when I was their age. So I I think it's something that we can do better at, but it is a concern to see those Why do you think that is? Do you have any like hunches um, based off like your experience? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I think like the, the Gen Z crowd and the, the kinds of yeah. patients that I see, um, 
I, I think that one contributing factor is social media. I, I don't want to get in trouble for saying that because a lot of people talk about the ways that social media is harmful to the mental health of teens and it can yeah, be, I think so. but I think there's also a good side of it where a lot of kids are exposed to other ideas and people talking about these things in a, a way that normalize it and, and makes it okay. So it, I think it's something that's that's generational. I think some of it is probably just an overall trend towards less stigma and more openness to talking about it that's happened over time. But yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know exactly. I do know that they're they're doing better than us and definitely better than our parents. Yeah. Yeah, I know just even hearing just a lot of young people talk, um, just, you know, it's, it's hard when you go on social media and you like see just people that are like 22 that are just like living their seemingly living, living their best life, like traveling, you know, like all, all constantly, like, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, I can yeah, understand no, social, how it can make someone media, feel bad. <laughs> absolutely. It can be a real source of problems as well. And, and you know, again, I want to be cautious about listing social media too much as a source because sure. I also increasingly see kids who, who are, uh, being bullied on social media or the source yeah. of a lot of their problems really has to do with social media. So it's kind of a, a, a difficult one to suss out exactly whether its role is good or bad. And again, the reality is that it's probably a bit of both and that it affects kids in, in different ways. So uh, anything else on, on these topics that you want to cover that maybe I missed? I, well, I, I'm glad that we had a chance to, to talk a bit about nursing. Like I said, I, I think yeah. that it's it's a really important career path. And you know, when it comes to the intersection of nursing and mental health, I think that one of the biggest places where we're going to see a lot of opportunity is in mental health nurses and nurses who provide mental health care. Okay. There are such big shortages of mental health providers in the U.S. right now that I'm really excited for growth in, in nursing in ways that nurses can, can really be involved in this. Because, mm-hmm. So what is, um, just so, so right now, the, the, so like if you want to provide therapy, like those are trained in uh, whatever specific field, but like nurses today, they can't be, they can't provide therapy or what are you yeah. describing exactly? Just so I understand. Yeah, yeah. So in nursing, there are a couple different licenses and, and kinds of nursing that you can do. So I'm a registered nurse in RN and, and that qualifies me for a certain scope of practice. Okay. But there's also a type of nursing degree. Well, it's usually a master's degree in nursing that qualifies you for a license as a nurse practitioner. It's a more advanced kind oh, of okay. nursing. And so nurse practitioners have a wider scope of practice and they can, in many cases, do therapy and prescribe medications and, and diagnose and do a, a bit more than a registered nurse could do. And, you know, those uh, advanced practice nurses who are nurse practitioners, there is a specific kind of training to become a mental health nurse practitioner. That's a place where I hope we see a lot of growth because it's it's really needed uh, given how, how bad our mental health shortages are. I saw some research, I think it was last year that uh, I just has always stuck with me. You know, right now in the US, about 70% of counties do not have a single child psychiatrist about 50% of counties do not have a single adult psychiatrist. And, and those, those numbers are just really crazy when you think about it, how, how much that means people don't have access to mental health treatment. And, um, you know, I, I think that we, we have to do better. We have to do better about getting providers to areas of shortages. Of course, a lot of those counties are rural places. And uh, even thinking about how we can use technology to bridge some of those divides too. I feel like people don't realize how important it is just to have like someone that's qualified, that's good to like just talk to, even if it's yeah, like not yeah. about something really specific, just even someone just this, to like share their thoughts with. You know? Absolutely. And I hear this over and over too, that people who, you know, have insurance and everything will, will try to find a therapist or get in to see a psychiatrist. And, 
you know, the, they're full. The, there's a wait list or it's months before yeah. you can I really can't get even, that I help. can't find anyone. Like I've literally been searching. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's like a profile that I want, you know, ideally want. But, you know, there's some good apps though. Like I know, I know uh, some of those online ones are, are quite good if you find the right person. Yeah, like. yeah. No, I, like I said, I think technology is a helpful tool, but there's also just a reality that given how severe our shortages, we just need more people in the mental health workforce. And, you know, there, there's only so much that we can do to use technology to connect people when we have shortages that are there's that are this severe. Is a like a program or how does someone become qualified to be able to, to do that? Yeah. So, so for um, nurses who might want to go into the mental health space, yeah. um, there are, again, specific nurse practitioner programs to become, it's called a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. And so certainly yeah. nurses who want to go down that road could go to graduate school and get that degree and, and practice specifically in mental health. There also are programs where if you are a nurse practitioner in another area, so maybe you're a primary care MP or you work in a hospital, mm. you can get a certificate in mental health to get that additional training to be able to do both the physical care and, and the mental health care. And I, I think those programs are great because, you know, we, we see so much intersection between need for physical health care and mental health care. So that's a viable option. And, and then, of course, you know, folks like me who might be an RN, there's a lot of jobs in the mental health space, working in um, psychiatric hospitals, residential treatment facilities, uh, a lot of other settings. And so um, there, there's lots of opportunity out there at, at all levels of nursing, whether you're an RN or a nurse. The hard thing is like also just like most people don't really know like all the career paths that they can go into, especially when you're like 18. It's like, they, it's you're, like, you're it's totally like right. doctor or nurse. <laughs> or yeah. PhD. Well, and to add to the confusion <laughs> for nursing, at least, you know, in nursing, there's so many different ways that one can become a nurse. You know, we have, mm-hmm. there are nursing aid programs where, you know, you really only need a high school degree to do this. Uh, you can become an RN by doing a two-year degree or a four-year yeah. degree. You can do a master's degree, you can do a doctoral degree, and we tend to kind of lump all these people together as nurses when really there's a lot of heterogeneity in what it means to be a nurse and what your practice is going to look like. Well, just to get your perspective on um, kind of the the leadership hierarchy today, um, I, I know, I believe this is something you mentioned before or something along the lines that like today nursing is very like heavily white dominant and um, despite like many of the nurses actually are uh, either immigrants or or, you know, I guess minorities. Yeah, yeah. Diversity in nursing is a really big problem. I, I think the most uh, glaring way that people think about diversity in nursing is in regards to gender. Nursing is mm-hmm. 80 to 90% women, depending on, you know, which yeah. area that you're looking at. But I think that we also have to think much more about racial diversity and, and what kinds of people we are, are bringing into the profession of nursing. It is largely a, a white profession, again, depending on the area. And, you know, I think that because of the work that we do in, as nurses is so relational, it's really important for us to make an effort to make sure that our workforce matches the communities that we're caring for, because it does make a difference to have healthcare providers who understand you and your culture who can speak the same language as you, those mm-hmm. things can go a really, really long ways to, to establishing trust and to making sure that you get the kind of care that you need. So I, I think there's a huge need to diversify nursing. And, and that goes from you know the nurses who are working in clinical practice to nurses like me who are working as scientists and leaders. Our profession is largely led uh, by women who, who are white. That's just kind of our mm-hmm. history and oh, where okay. things are at. Uh, but I, I think that we, again, can do a lot better and, and would really benefit from having more diverse perspectives in leadership and nursing. And, you know, in, in nursing, the I mentioned earlier that nursing, there's a lot of different ways to be a nurse. You can be a nurse with, you know, a two-year degree, a four-year degree, a master's degree. And then we also have 
vocational programs for nursing, and we tend to lump all these things together. I think it's also really important that we make sure that we have programs where nurses who enter the profession at maybe one of those lower rungs of the ladder as like a vocational nurse or a nurse aide have opportunity to advance in the profession of nursing and go up and, and get into those leadership roles and get more education. I think we need a lot more support for, for nursing education. Um, and it's, it's something that, you know, we, we need to do for, for reasons of, you know, equity and diversity, but also because I, I really believe it will make our profession stronger and, and make us mm-hmm. provide better care to patients. I'm curious, what is your day to day, like life look like, you know, cause I'm also just trying to get a feel for like the difference of someone becoming like a doctor or in terms of lifestyle versus, I mean, like, you know, obviously like you have a PhD and you're doing research and you're a professor. So it's like going to be different than like someone that's only just practicing nursing. Right. But I'm still curious. I'm very curious. Like kind of like, what does your day-to-day normally look like in lifestyle? So, so most nurses, you know, who, who work in clinical care, usually a lot of nurses work in either 12 hour shifts or eight hour shifts. Okay. The 12 hour like shifts mom, are really. She's the, do the 12 yeah, hour shifts. The 12 I'll be hour alone shifts, 12 hours yeah. a day because she's a single mom. <laughs> so like she'd be gone in the morning before I woke up up and then like come back at like eight or something yeah no it's it's a slog it's it's a long day but you know those four-day weekends really feel good when you have them so it's it's a trade-off so yeah for for most nurses like any healthcare work you know it's it's shift work and and there are going to be times where you work nights where you work holidays where you work weekends and so again that's a trade-off healthcare is a 24 7 operation and it's something that we we just kind of have to always have running So that's kind of the day-to-day for most clinical nurses. And as I mentioned, I practice as a psychiatric nurse. And so when I work clinically, um, it's it's the same thing. It's often 12-hour shifts. I usually will do it on my weekends, Saturdays, Sundays, or evenings when I can squeeze it in. As a professor, life looks a little bit different. So typically as a professor, there's sort of three big buckets of work that we do. And those are research, teaching, and service to profession. And when I tell people I'm a professor, usually the first thing they ask is, oh, that, that's great. What do you teach? But at a place like UCLA, uh, teaching is actually a relatively small part of what I do. I'm, I'm primarily a researcher and a scientist. So mm-hmm. I would say the research is about 75% of my time on, on any given day. And then the teaching clinical practice and, and service pieces mm-hmm. kind of fall in, in that other 25%. But you know, one of the things I really like about being both a clinician and a scientist is that these things, you know, practicing clinically, research, teaching, they are things I can flex and, and do different amounts at different times, depending on where the needs are. And it, it makes for a really dynamic kind of work that, that I really enjoy. You never get bored. Yeah, that's really nice. Cause um, just, just the fact that you, you're able to have that diversity and, uh, and what you, what you're doing. And also I yes. think research overall too, you, you kind of have a lot of choice into like things that you're interested in, right. To, yes. To focus yes, on. definitely. So. I, I think that's one of the great things too about being being a scientist at a university is you do have a lot mm-hmm. of freedom to choose what you study and, and who you work with. And, and that makes for a really um, rewarding kind of research. And then segue, segueing into just kind of like personal, like uh, free time, you know, when, when you do have free time, and you're not working. Uh, what are some of the things that, you know, you do and how do you, um, you know, how do you take care of yourself outside of work? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. You know, I really love um, anything outdoors. Um, I'm I'm a runner, and I in COVID have recently become more of a trail runner than I used to be. So I really enjoyed that. I really like hiking, backpacking, uh, surfing, rock climbing, uh, any anything in that camp. I usually really enjoy doing. And you know, I feel really fortunate to live in Southern California, where there's a lot of great access to pretty much any outdoor thing that that you could want to do. 
and you know, for me, it's it's something that uh, I I really prioritize because it helps me be able to function and, and to do my job mm-hmm. is is to make sure that I have that time to be outdoors and and just be away from 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 work and, and life. Uh, I really like to cook. I enjoy playing the piano, and and I really love to read. Ever since I was little, I've I've always really liked to read, and that's something that I I spend a lot of time doing as well. Are you pretty self-aware of just like um, your own, like constantly your own like mental health, how you're feeling and and things that make you feel, um, you know, like energize you and stuff like that? Just just because also like the fact that, that that's kind of like the area that you study. I wonder if there's, a, yeah, you know, to focus. Area. That's, a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I would like to think I am. I would like to think I have a pretty good read on when I'm, you know, filled up versus burned out and when I need to kind of take a step back for my own mental health. But uh, I'll be honest, it's it's hard sometimes. The the kind of job that I have uh, as, as a professor at a research intensive university like UCLA uh, comes with a fair amount of pressure. And there are a lot of times where it feels like work can, uh, can really be a lot, you know, especially because I do often practice on, on my weekend. As, as a nurse. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely try to be, but it's something that's always, um, always a work in progress. And, and I think that it's, it's always um, something that I really have to incorporate into my daily practice of feeling how filled up versus empty am I running on empty? And, uh, you know, if I am in that state where I'm running on empty, what can I do to get out of that, knowing that there might be some things about my life and work that I can't necessarily change. Um, and yeah, that's, that's something that is uh, kind of always in flux. I'm sure it is for you too. I, you know, I, I asked it also just because I was curious because for myself, I feel like I'm always trying to observe like what things are draining my energy or like energizing me because uh, it's really important just to, like not feel burnt out. It, it is. It is really important. And, you know, I think that I also have to really often remind myself of why I'm doing the work I do yeah. and then what parts of the work can be energizing to me. There are some things about my job, like all of us, that I find to be really draining, but then there are also some things about my job that I find to be extremely inspiring and that re-energize me. One of the things I love most is working with students. Uh, I, I love their energy and their passion for, for becoming nurses and making change. And it's just always really inspiring to meet students and meet people who are young, who, who are idealistic often and, and have a lot of energy. I, I absolutely love that. And I also love working with patients. It gives me a lot of energy to see people who, you know, in my case, have mental illness and to see the small ways that they make progress and, uh, and, and work towards getting better, um, it's very, very rewarding. And so I think mm-hmm. part of it, too, is knowing that some things about work are not modifiable. How do I uh, really focus on those areas of work that are why I do it and that I know can fill me back up when I'm feeling burnt out? Well, what are some of the, uh, what's some of the advice I'm curious that you give to maybe some of the younger uh, or, or that you would give to some of the younger students um, that are just in the very beginning of their career? Is there yeah, anything that yeah. comes up a lot or? Well, you know, I think to, to your point, I think it really starts with just being self-aware about your own mental health. I think it's really important for us to be reflective about uh, what we're doing, why we're doing it, and, and to be able to know when you've reached a limit and when you have to step back. So I, I think that that self-awareness is a big piece of it. I think that making sure to find time that you can for things that fill you back up is really important. You know, there have been times in my life I'm thinking specifically when I was in grad school doing a PhD, yeah. where it just felt like the the demands of school were just so crushing. I had no yeah. time for, for, for things. And I would just work and work and grind and grind every day. But I think I've come to realize now that when I take a small amount of time to do something that fills me up, 
I work more efficiently, you know, than yeah. if I'm coming from a place of running on empty. And so I think that anything you can do to, to find those things that, you know, fill you up and prioritize them, even if it's in a really, really small way, um, that, that can go a long ways for helping yourself to keep going. And then I think the other thing I would say is that, you know, I think it's really easy when you're young, when I think about myself in college, just to not have a long-term perspective on things, the here and now can feel like it's really filling up everything about your, your yeah. vision. And I think it's also important to know that, you know, the way things are now, if you are in school or grad school or not sure what you want to do, uh, but that can change any time. And if things about your life uh, don't feel the way that you want, or, you know, you're in a place where you do have a lot of demands from work or school or whatever, that may, may change in the future. And, and that you just never know where your life is going to take you. I never like intended to be a nurse. I never intended to be a professor. And, you know, I, I've kind of stopped trying to predict the future for myself because yeah. I don't really know what comes next. And so I think you, anything you can do to have that perspective is, is good. You just mostly focus on uh, like in terms of the next steps. Um, do you do you kind of set goals just based off of like things that you're currently interested in and in, in the direction that you're going or or how did you, um, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think I do try to have, you know, short and long term goals for my work here and now. But I think there's also sort of an approach to work where I always try to be open to new opportunities. Um, you know, even though I may mm -hmm. have ideas of research projects or studies that I think I want to do, um, there have been many times where an opportunity that comes out of left field that I didn't ever anticipate that ends up changing my direction. And so I think it's having those goals, but also just being open that if something comes your way that maybe you didn't expect or anticipate that that um, piques your interest and seems like it might be meaningful, just to be open to that. And, you know, that's been the case for the career I've landed in, you know, opportunities kind of came my way to get a PhD and to be a scientist, you know, to come to UCLA and do the work I do now. And like I said, I don't know what that will look like in the future, but, yeah. um, you know, life, life happens. And, and I expect that there will be more change that I, I don't know is coming in the future. So uh, just another side topic, what, what are just some things like in, in your personal life in terms of like bucket lists or things that you recommend uh, everyone to do, uh, <laughs> you know, outside of career, just, you know, kind of random question, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this is maybe like too stereotypical of a millennial thing to say, but I do think traveling, if you have the opportunity to, is something that has really um, been something that shaped a lot of my perspectives. I think it really just, uh, yeah, gives you a different perspective on your life and the world to get out and see a place that's different from where you are. And it doesn't even have to be, you know, traveling to, to countries all over the world, any traveling you can do, you know, with your own, within your own state or city, anything you can do to change your perspective, I think is, is really, really valuable. I've never been really too much one for, for bucket lists. Another that I'll say I have though, is that uh, I, I always try to have the perspective that I, I always want to be growing and learning. And part of that is reading. I've had the goal for a long time of reading 100 books in a year. I've gotten to as many as 93. That's the most I've ever gotten, really but haven't quite gotten to 100. So I would love it. Well, 100 is a book every like three days, isn't it? It's a or lot of books. Days. Yeah, yeah, days. yeah. I, I'm a fast reader, so I think it's achievable for me. But um, yeah, I, I think I always want to have that goal too of just learning and taking in yeah. perspectives and it doesn't have to be reading a hundred books. Cool. Anyways, just any last things that we didn't cover that you want to share? Um, just any parting words? Yeah, I, I think just kind of circling back to some of the things we touched on earlier, you know, I think it can be really easy again when you're young to, to only see a couple of tracks for your career and your life and where it should go, whether it's 
being a doctor or, or some other career path that you think you have to do with doctor or um, lawyer, <laughs> doctor or lawyer. Yeah, no, th there's so much more out there than that. And, and again, I think just having that openness to opportunities that might come your way, willingness to maybe consider something different uh, can really bring a lot of rewarding experiences to you. So uh, definitely would encourage people to be open. Certainly if you're in the healthcare space, maybe be open to nursing. It's a great career path to think yeah. about. And, uh, you know, something I also always tell my students is that I talked at the very beginning about this idea of being a cog in a machine versus being someone that's going to be changing the machine. Yeah. And, and I talked to my students a lot about this. You know, if you're going to be going into nursing, you need to think about what is the level of impact that you want to have. You can be someone who's working really downstream and who's sort of taking care of people one at a time. Or you can go upstream and really think more about how you can solve things at a systemic level. And I think it's really important to think about where are you going to be happy and what is the level of change that you want to make? Those two levels, they're not better or worse than the other. A lot of people find a really meaningful and compelling career in doing that downstream work and taking care of people who are sick one person at a time. And if that's you, that's great. But if you're someone who knows that's not you and you know that you are going to be like me or maybe like you looking upstream and wanting to do something bigger, um, don't be afraid to go and do that and to do it when you're young. Uh, many people have told me that, you know, I, uh, I can't be a scientist or I'm too inexperienced to be a scientist and look down at me more than anything else be because I'm, I'm young for, for what I do. Mm. And uh, I just think that that's something that we, we have to get past. And, and those of us who are young and have these aspirations and know these things about ourselves early, uh, it's important to not let that hold you back and, and to go go and make the kind of change that you want to. Thanks everyone for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Of course, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please feel free to email Dominic at whyyouknowdoctor.com. Until next time.